We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Wow, Jonah Lanto. Did that one take a long was, time, Don Palumbo? I don't think so. I'm trying to slow down. I mean, I felt like it, it took the, uh, oh. the appropriate amount of time. Okay, yeah. sometimes yeah. it feels like, wow, am I just taking forever? Here with that, we're coming at you anyways from yeah. Midwest Murder. It was a perfectly average speed intro <laughs> that I read there, so that's good. Wasn't slow, wasn't fast, just the right speed. And we really do appreciate Atypical. They're a longtime partner with us, and I just want to say these guys are doing great things with, for, and in the community. So be sure you check them out wherever you are. Beer's delicious, and it's a fun place to do a, a Midwest Murder live show, and they do lots of cool music shit here too. I know so. it's one of my favorites. Yeah. So yeah, thanks to A-Tips. Thanks to the, the folks who keep coming back to share an evening with us here at these live events. We're truly humbled by you guys. And, and we, we love to do this. And we really do appreciate as well everybody who takes time out of their busy life to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Don, I'm kind of curious what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? Well, me too, because um, you're always, you're the one that, that surprises me with these in the, in the script. So, Full of surprises. Um, yes. So it's a, it's, it's new for me too. Uh, five stars from mommy, mama, mom, bruh. If, if you know, you know, right. Um, so a newbie, I was never into murder podcasts until my friends dragged me to a show at Atypical. Uh, here we are again. I pictured myself listening half intently while sipping beer and maybe scrolling Facebook, which we've all been there, but wanted to hang out with them or at least get away from the kids. Fast forward to a few months later and I wait for the next upload. I listen on road trips or while getting ready for work. I especially love Jonah's recap of the trends of the year and both Don and Jonah have an easy to listen to voice. It's an quote, I must know what happens at the end type podcast. I hate when I have to pause pause it because a child needs something again we've all been there so yeah that's awesome Fitting of the mommy mama is, mom bruh, bruh. Mm-hmm. that freaking bruh like seriously like uh, guess, english children parent of a middle schooler for sure totally i bet i bet their middle schooler isn't even wearing a coat right now yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh yeah it's still me right five stars from five stars from ben's mom if you don't listen you're missing out Don and Jonah never disappoint when bringing a horrific story to life. They bring character and opinions, sparking great discussion about some hard facts in life. Murder. I was hooked from the first episode, and I always want more. 
Keep up the great work and thank you for all that you do. P.S. I'm hoping to be number 500 with an uplifting review. Bam. Woohoo! Thanks. Thanks, That's Mom. Awesome. Yeah, we, we appreciate you. I'm not certain if you're 500, but you were darn close. You know that what? was you, really cool. You can be in your world. We're qualifying you for it's number 500. 500. That's it. Absolutely. You can also buy us a hot dish. It's kind of like just uh, supporting the show financially at buymeacoffee.com slash Murder. It helps us pay for case files and the databases that we access, sometimes hotels, different things like that that keep the wheels turning here at Midwest Murder. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash Murder. This show is also brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the people you love most will live on after they're gone? A few years ago, I decided that I didn't want my grandma's memories and stories to be forgotten. Eventually, that led me to invite my grandma Helen into the Good Talk studio, where she was treated like a star guest and interviewed by the same industry professional who has interviewed Olympians, authors, community leaders, scientists, educators, business leaders, actors, musicians, and many more people who are respected in their career fields. That industry professional who interviewed Grandma Helen was actually me, and now her memories, told in her voice, will carry on in our family for generations. My grandkids, that I'm in no rush whatsoever to have, will someday know their great-great-grandma. Midwest Memoirs can do this for your family, whether it's your grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, best friends, cousins. We're here to help ensure the stories of your family never stop being told. Find out more at Midwest Memoirs on Facebook. Or Instagram. We're heading back to the year 1977. Jimmy Carter was sworn in as president. Elvis Presley died at the age of 42. August 16th. Ooh, Don with the, the, the trivia knowledge right there. And I honestly have no idea why. I'm not, I'm not jamming to Elvis really ever. Star Wars was released. Arnold Schwarzenegger made his debut with the Pumping Iron documentary. And Grace Jones was the worldwide disco queen. Bonus points, Don, if you know Mad Max. what 1982 film those two later starred in. Wonderful guess. It was Conan the Barbarian. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yes. I was so I was, wow, I was you really were confident. confident. Like, yeah, you were in on that. <laughs> Don's hey. like, I would bet vital parts of my anatomy on this. I, 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 yeah, yeah, actually, if you would have said that 30 <laughs> seconds ago, I probably would have. So, okay, I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit. In 1977, the son of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz, was captured. You could say there was a lot of iconic music happening with the release of Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. And, and R.I.P. Christine McVie. Yeah. She is like, today. she, wow. Yeah, she passed away today. And she, any, any song that she is, um, that she's on vocals is my absolute favorite. And if we you listen to a lot of Fleetwood Mac on the we, road. We do, yeah. And if you haven't checked out the documentary um, Rumors um, about Fleetwood Mac, and it's about worth that entire it. album, it, it's so worth it. Yeah. Led Zeppelin set the record for concert attendance with 76,200 people at the Pontiac Silverdome, an epic three-hour, 17-song show with no break. It was part of their final United States tour. It's the first time I've actually been able to cut my favorite band into the uh, intro part of this, so that was a big moment for me. I would have needed snacks. Three hours, 17 songs. Yeah, snacks snacks. and, 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 and beers and... Lots of good That's stuff. That's a lot of time. Yeah. In in 1977, feathered hair, low-cut swimsuits, bell-bottoms, logoed t-shirts were in style, and the most popular toys 
really serve to remind us how different the times are today. The most popular toys in 77, the Hobie Hot Dogger Skateboard. That's that little skinny skateboard, the, if you guys remember like that. The, the plastic one? Yeah, like, like the, the little like, arrow-looking yeah, yeah, skinny. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yep. The slinky. Roller skates, wooden snow sleds, erector sets, Charlie Charlie's Angels dolls, and bicycles, the most popular toys of 1977. And if we if if we gave our kids some of those now, they'd be like, "What? What is this? Like the slinky would be a necklace." Or something. I don't know. Roller skates are making a comeback. They are. I'm. You know what? I'm. I'm really dogging on children today. I'm. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. But you know what? Put on a fucking coat, right? Like I'm. <laughs> Please. I'm just for the love of God. I'm. I'm. They're not going to get this message, but everyone knows, right? But it's been a day. Actually, some kids will because they do listen to us. And. So. I'd actually, I'd actually like to recognize perhaps one of the unsung heroes of 1977, and that's badass mechanic and, com- and, and, and combat veteran Bobby Cochran, who intentionally drove his sports car, a Jaguar, into a Ku Klux Klan rally stage. He didn't know what the KKK was, went there the night before, heard their message, Went home, was like, fuck these guys. Came back the next day and drove his Jaguar through their stage. Which, I mean... Bobby Cochran, thank you. That is lovely. And, I mean, a Jaguar, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming he is, he was a, you know, well-off businessman. And he got know, charged and, heavily. It's a whole other story. Right. But anyways. October 8th, 1977. Staring down the barrel of a bolt-action Remington, Remington 730-06 hunting rifle. The sniper positioned himself about 100 yards away from the Brith Shalom Kineseth Israel congregation in the Richmond Heights suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. Scrupulous planning preceded this moment. He rode a bicycle so no vehicle could be spotted or tire tracks traced. The rifle was hidden in a guitar case in the bushes the night before. The serial number filed off the weapon, and he hammered a pair of nails into the telephone pole, then stretched a sock across them creating a makeshift gun rest. He knew the church service let out at 1 p.m. And like clockwork, just minutes later, congregants shuffled out of the building. He kept his gun trained on two men who stopped to exchange words. There was a young girl next to them, another woman, and two more girls nearby. The sniper poised himself with controlled breathing, looked into his scope at the men, and quickly fired a pair of shots in their direction. The first person hit was 42-year-old Gerald Jerry Gordon. The bullet pierced his left arm and eventually lodged in his chest, damaging his lung, stomach, and numerous organs. All hell broke loose outside the synagogue, and the sniper took advantage of the chaos, firing three more times. Not waiting to see the results, he ditched the gun in the guitar case, hopped on his bike, rode to a nearby shopping center, got in his parked car, and sped off. Jerry Gordon died a few hours later on the operating table at St. Louis County Hospital. Two additional people sustained non-life-threatening injuries. It didn't take long for police to find the gun and sniper perch, along with an empty five-round magazine and the bullet shells. Several witnesses... Wait, wait. Oh, he ditched the gun. I was like, I thought he was carrying the gun. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Several witnesses observed the man in the hour before the shooting. He was described as five feet... 10 inches tall, medium build with long curly hair and acne scars, possibly 20 to 25 years old. So it's 1977. That guy's, you know, looks like everybody. Yeah. Basically. Very, yeah. Very, very average looking dude. 
The attack was a major story in the region, and synagogues were reluctant to declare it as an anti-Semitic attack. However, afterward, most added guards and security patrols. Lieutenant Thomas H. Bulch led more than 20 detectives in the major case squad assigned to the shooting. The team successfully used a chemical treatment to lift the serial number from the rifle, and working with the ATF, the weapon was traced back to Irving, Texas. The gun was sold for 200 bucks four weeks earlier. The shop owner provided a description to police sketch artists. Witnesses collaborated the sketch with the man they had seen running through the shopping mall parking lot and speeding off. But investigators were still open to the possibility that more than one person might have been responsible for this attack. Whoever it was, disappeared. Although there were several similar killings throughout the United States in the late 70s and early 80s. Killings that took years for investigators to link. October 21st, 1979. 42-year-old Jesse Eugene Taylor walks out of an Oklahoma City grocery store carrying a few bags of groceries. Waiting for him in the parking lot are his 31-year-old wife, Vera, and three children, ages 9, 10, and 12. As Jesse Taylor neared the vehicle, he was shot three times in rapid succession, collapsing instantly to the parking lot. It all happened so fast, Vera rushed to Jesse's side without hesitation. The instinct to protect the man she loved earned her a bullet through the heart. The sniper struck from several hundred feet away in a parking lot across the street. On January 12, 1980, lifelong Indianapolis resident Lawrence Reese was shot through a plate glass window of a church's chicken restaurant where he worked. 48 hours later, 19-year-old Leo Thomas Watkins was shot and killed through a plate glass window at Quick Pick Market. Because so, well, so yeah, we, yeah, we've sure. we've got we've started in Missouri we've in seventy seven in seventy seven so two years later we got to Oklahoma City in and seventy nine and yeah yep. and then in nineteen eighty Indianapolis so I mean yep. this this uh, fell in the guitar cases covering ground yeah because Reese and Watkins had no connection investigators doubted if there was a link between the two that changed when the ballistics confirmed the same weapon was used in the killings a Marlin 30 caliber rifle. On May 28, 1980, prominent civil rights figure Vernon E. Jordan was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The 44-year-old attorney Vernon Jordan was president of the National Urban League and earned his law degree at Howard University. Jordan delivered a speech for more than 400 people and then mingled. Afterward, he left with a white woman to have coffee at her house. On their way back to the hotel, they were harassed by a carload of young white men who shouted racial slurs at them. Upon returning to the hotel, the two sat in the car and talked for a few minutes. As Jordan stepped out of the vehicle, he was hit in the back by a bullet that fragmented on a chain-link fence on his way to kill him. The exit wound in Vernon Jordan's chest was the size of a fist. Like a baby fist? Like a fist, or, or like a like a, a like an like adult a regular size, a adult sized fist. fist. It left a fist sized hole. Oh my gosh. On, on the exit wound, he survived. The incident nearly killed him. But after two weeks, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He survived. Yeah, he survived. Yeah, two weeks in ICU. Numerous 
surgeries, he stabilized, but he would face months and months of recovery. And it was an incident that drew President Carter's attention. This is a prominent figure in the civil rights movement, and the possibility of it being a racially motivated attack made it a federal case because of a civil rights violation. Well, but also it's once they linked... I mean, he's crossed state lines too. They bunch. haven't linked that. They have no right, idea. But I suppose. Yeah, I'm jumping. No ahead, idea. I, guess, I suppose. Yeah, the yeah. only the only federal link. But but the only federal attention is because because this it's is supposed to be a, yeah. a potentially yeah. racially motivated attack. Right. Right. Cincinnati, June eighth, nineteen eighty. Cousins Daryl Lane, age fourteen, and Dante Evan Bra- Evans Brown, thirteen, were killed with a high-powered rifle as they walked along Reading Road. The sniper perched above on Bond Hill, waiting patiently for the right set of victims. And when the young boys came along, he ruthlessly took their lives. The boys, the boys had just left Grandma's house to buy candy. The first paramedic on scene with the emergency personnel was none other than Daryl's father. Oh, come on. Wow. Just to get that call, something terrible has happened, you have no idea, and you show up, and it's your kid. It's your kid, yeah. Families and investigators struggled to cope with understanding such senseless violence against two innocent boys, but there were no witnesses, there were no clues, and the killer disappeared. June 15th, 1980, Kathleen McCoola and Arthur Smothers had been a couple for three years. The two were popular with friends, both black and white, in spite of parental concerns that Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where they lived, might not be ready for mixed-race couples. Whoa, that's, my family's from there. Like, that's where my dad lives. Okay. Wow. Kathy was a talented artist, and Arthur, an athlete who ran in the Boston Marathon and held aspirations to start a remodeling company. The interracial couple were shot from a distance while walking across the Washington Street Bridge in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. 22-year-old Arthur D. Smothers was shot first. The bullet impacts sent him reeling off the sidewalk and into the gutter. His girlfriend, Kathleen McCoola, screamed, helplessly looking around for safety. Pop! A shot rang out but missed, shattering a chunk of concrete on the bridge near her. She had nowhere to turn, no cover to hide. Pop! Pop! Another pair of shots do not miss their target. The couple died a few hours later at the hospital. The killer disappeared. There were no witnesses who could provide any useful details of their murder. Wednesday, August 20th, 1980. Around 9 p.m., a group of friends started out for a jog in Salt Lake City, Utah. Among them are 20-year-old Theodore Ted Fields, 18-year-old David Lamar Martin III, Karma Ingersoll, and Terry Elrod, both of whom are 15. The group parked at David's house and went for a jog heading south toward Liberty Park. After a while, the girls stopped near the tennis courts to rest and the guys made a final lap. It was nearly 10.15 as they crossed the road in the safety of a neighborhood crosswalk. Pop! It sounded like a distant firecracker. Terry's arm was bloody. Pop! Another shot. Pop! Pop! David stumbled into Ted's arms. Run! Ted screams at the girls, trying desperately to drag David to safety. Another pair of shots ring out, and Ted collapses onto the pavement. It was over in moments. 
Numerous witnesses identified a maroon Chevy Camaro. One watched the driver run a red light, whip a Yui, and pull into a field. Investigators determined that happened about the same time the group went jogging. Other witnesses were able to give descriptions of the gunman and the hasty escape he made. People rushed to the aid of the two young men shortly after the attack, but neither survived. The, the girls, the, the ladies did make it? They ran away? The ladies made it. it. Yep. Just the two, the, two, the two young men. Additional evidence recovered, from the crime, recovered by the crime scene investigation team included tire tracks and six 30-30 bullet shell casings. The bullets were fired from the same rifle, most likely a Marlin or Glenfield. Police couldn't pin down a motive, although many believed it was racial. Ted and David were black. The two girls were white. The fathers of the two girls actually had to be cleared as suspects because rumors tied both men to anti-black sentiment. One of them was a member in a KKK sympathetic biker gang. They both passed and cleared, but eventually the potential for civil rights violations brought this case to the attention of the FBI. The investigation quickly concluded the suspect fled Salt Lake City. A national teletype alert was sent out. So at this point, then they've, they've linked all of the, or most they've of them? They've linked nothing. They've, they still haven't linked anything. Zero so, link at this point. So this would be like the second group of, of shootings that have gone to the FBI for potential civil rights violate or for... The first, the first shooting was individual. It was Vernon Jordan. So right. just one. And okay. that was, yep. And, and that mostly because he was, of course, a, a leader. And then this one, yes, this one because made it, it was, to the attention sure. of the FBI. So they sent the national teletype. Another potential lead came from a college student who made ends meet as a sex worker several nights a week. She reported a John that hatefully ranted about blacks and demanded she give him a list of every black pimp in Salt Lake City because he wanted to kill them all. She noticed tattoos on his arms of an eagle and grim reaper. According to her, his name was David Hagman. Leads from the college student were pursued. The name proved to be phony and Hagman left behind no latent fingerprints. The investigators were smart. They visited every motel within a 30-mile radius reviewing guest registration cards. Police were able to match eight cards that appeared to have similar handwriting. One was from a hotel just nine blocks from Liberty Park on the same night of the shooting. Another witness identified a man fitting the killer's description who angrily stormed out of a hotel after he saw black people working there. When the national teletype for the Salt Lake City killings went out, investigators in other jurisdictions connected the M.O. and the signature to their investigations. The M.O. shooting victims from, a, from afar with a high-powered rifle. The signature choosing black victims. On September 15th, investigators from across the country met to compare evidence Representatives from Oklahoma City, Indianapolis, Johnstown, Salt Lake City, and Cincinnati met, compared cases, and agreed there was striking similarity. Sketches appeared similar. It took a lot of meticulous work to put these details together. The efforts of local law enforcement were essential in bringing this case to the attention of the FBI. The investigation also uncovered nearly a dozen aliases as well as witnesses to Franklin's purchase of various wigs. 
it started to become clear they were likely dealing with a deadly serial killer sniper who traveled easily from state to state and never got close to his victims. It was, at the minimum, a year-long killing spree. Because at this point, they're still in 1980. They haven't yep. even put together the They haven't the put others. together 77. Sure. Yeah. yeah. On September 25th, 1980, police patrolling in Florence, Kentucky, near the Scottish Inn, identified a parked vehicle suspected in the commission of a robbery. It was just after 2 a.m. when police arrested the man in room 137. The late-night commotion really pissed off the guest in room 138. He called the front desk to complain. The front desk told him, Hey, it's not our problem. The cops are arresting the guy in the room next to you. What can we do? He was still triggered. So then the guest in room 138 escalates it. He calls the cops to complain about their arrest. Yeah, he's like, hey. Hey, keep it down next door, please. He's like, hey, you've got me blocked in. It's 2 a.m. I might need to leave. You know, you're, and you're, you're being a little noisy. You're about being it. a little noisy. So How am I supposed to go anywhere when you're parked right behind my Camaro? So room 138 guy called the police several more times during the course of the arrest. He was such a nuisance. The police chief even got on the phone to explain they were investigating a robbery and arresting the guy next to him that had nothing to do with him. He sounds fun. He sounds fun. Like... As the investigation was wrapping up, an alert cop spotted a revolver laying on the passenger seat of the Camaro. He ran the vehicle plates and got a hit. This Camaro matched the description of one connected to a double homicide in Salt Lake City, Utah. The guest in room 138 was a man named Joseph Paul Franklin, and he was the prime suspect for murder in at least Five states. Police make the arrest without any trouble. Of, of, room of thir- Joseph of room Paul Franklin, guy. room yeah. 138. You know, I don't want to say his name. I don't want to say his name. He doesn't deserve his name to be said. So room 138 guy. I like that. I like how you described him. That guy sucks. Although Franklin was talkative during his interrogation with the Florence PD, he wasn't forthcoming about anything and didn't seem to remember where he'd been or where he was going. Above all, Franklin denied any involvement in murder. At some point, the interrogator left the room, leaving Franklin alone with Officer Jim Riley. A knock at the door drew Riley's attention. He poked his head out the door, and just like that, Joseph Paul Franklin jumped up and climbed out the window and got away. Trained dogs were able to track his scent for a few blocks, but to no avail. Franklin dipped. Hang on. Jumped up, jumped out a window. One second here. Yeah. So there was a window and he, and you know, what's his face? Like, you know, pokes his head out and he's, and he's bam, I'm gone. And he climbed out a fucking window and nobody, nobody noticed. Like nobody noticed. Like it happened so fast. It was, and he was, and he was above, like you you think about this cop. He's like, holy shit. He's, this guy's running away. And then like you, you get outside down the stairs and out and he's gone already. What is it? Like Kaiser Sue say here? Like what is going on? Oh my god. He gosh. dipped and, out with quickness. And I have to apologize for my mouth. Like like Jonah said earlier, I am in a mood and Someone. I am like 
Like, F that guy. Yeah, well, so, sorry. I'm you know, this is, of course, by the official police reports, so who knows? Maybe maybe they dipped for, like, five minutes and they don't want to admit that shit. We don't know. Maybe they this is the official story. Maybe they let him have a cigarette outside, and, and then they're like, hey, there's a window. He totally snuck out of that, right? Right, guys? Right, guys? You saw that? So yeah. I'm just, he I'm gets kidding. out. I'm kidding. Now, here, this is a big moment. Shortly after the escape, on October 10th, 1980, agents contacted the FBI BSU. None other than John Douglas. Enter my man, John Douglas. Yeah. Man. Their unit was still well under development and highly scrutinized by the suits at the top during this time. As we all know today, in spite of the scrutiny, their work will ultimately go on to change the world's understanding of criminals and massively evolve our ability to capture the worst people. Well, in, in 1980, I mean, it was still, you know, New, like, new. Woo woo stuff. Like, you know, that's mm-hmm. not, that's not science. That's what we're going to study the mind. What are you nuts? Yep. No way. A lot of resistance right yeah, now. So his office was asked to provide a psychological assessment for Joseph Paul Franklin. Douglas was vaguely aware of the man. He knew that Franklin was suspected of killing two black joggers in Salt Lake City, Utah, but that was about it. But it got worse. Joseph Paul Franklin could be responsible for more racially motivated killings in Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and several other states. Franklin, of course, escaped. They're telling John Douglas, Franklin escaped from police custody. And now the suits were about to demand John Douglas use his research and experience to find him. Even though this wasn't entirely how Douglas's work was designed or being developed, Headquarters wanted the report within 24 hours, and they expected something useful that would directly aid not only in his capture, but also in his handling once they capture him. So don't leave a window open, I'm guessing, right? In the handling, is that what you mean? (laughs) That's that's a big one. Okay. The final jolt of information came last. Franklin was the prime suspect for murder of civil rights leader, for the attempted murder of civil rights leader Vernon Jordan, from Indiana in May of 1979. The Secret Service was also on high alert after receiving a threatening letter to President Carter over his pro-civil rights stance. That letter was sent by Joseph Paul Franklin. So same guy, so room 138 guy. 138 guy. I mean, he's making the rounds and also threatening President Carter. Yeah. Like, do we know, like, so Managed to get off a letter to threaten the president. But that was like back in 79, right? Like, so, okay. Well, he killed Vernon Jordan in 79. The letter letter was 7980. Yeah, attempted murder. Excuse me. Okay, gotcha. Prior to this case, the BSU, the Behavioral Science Unit, worked, all the cases they had worked prior to this one were actually with local police or sheriff's offices. It was the first time Orders came down from FBI headquarters for them to get involved in a case. There was a metric shit ton of pressure on the BSU to produce results. I'm, I'm curious, is, um, do we measure it in metric system or, um, or what's the other one? I can't think of it. The which one? Thank you. The Imperial one. Thanks. God, that would have been funnier Preferred. if I could remember that. Never yeah. mind. Never mind. <laughs> My joke failed. Never mind. Moving on. These killings reignited a lot of anger that was still lingering from the 60s when the atrocities of the KKK throughout the South were met with no justice from the states in which they occurred. As a serial killer, a term that wasn't yet part of the social currency, Franklin was unlike previous criminals. 
that Douglas had studied. His ultimate fantasy wasn't motivated by wicked sexual fulfillment. Franklin wanted to kill people based on their race, which meant his spectrum for targets was broad. Douglas took all the Franklin files to his favorite hideaway on the top floor of the library. Natural light spilled across the room and large windows gave way to an expansive view of the Virginia countryside. He started piecing together a lot of the basic facts. Franklin actually had two date of births on record, April 13, 1950 and February 9, 1950. An obvious and intentional effort to mask who he was. He was born in Mobile, Alabama. Brown hair, blue eyes, an eagle tattoo on his left forearm, the Grim Reaper on his right. Openly affiliated with the American Nazi Party in Texas and the Worldwide Church of God in California. One report indicated Joseph Paul Franklin was a legal name change from Maryland in which Franklin said he was having his name changed so he could go to Rhodesia and kill black people. There was a lot of tough guy talk in the paramilitary groups Franklin hung out in of traveling to Rhodesia for combat, particularly against blacks. His original name, James Clayton Vaughn. Franklin chose the name Joseph Paul in honor of Paul Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi minister of propaganda. Another startling fact, the sniper was blind in one eye. Shortly after the name change, on September 8, 1976, Franklin was arrested for assault and battery on a mixed-race couple. He stalked them for 10 miles following a concert, trapped the two on a dead-end street, then maced them in their car. The work of John Douglas revealed a troubling childhood. Both of Joseph Franklin's parents were severely abusive. His father was a World War II vet who came home disabled with a limp and speech impediment. Franklin's mother was the daughter of Nazi sympathizers. Franklin had three siblings, a brother and two sisters. Joseph Franklin was raised in cruelty, and thus his existence became an extension of the hateful violence and abuse that he lived through. Franklin's inhumanity extended to animals. I won't go into those details, but rest assured, he was an animal killer. At age 15, he read Mein Kampf for the first time, Hitler's personal journal, after checking it out from the public library in Mobile, Alabama. He never returned the book, eventually dropped out of high school, and got married to a younger woman at around age 19. They divorced 10 months later, She cited physical abuse. Franklin eventually joined the American Nazi Party in Virginia in the late 60s, spent time moving throughout the South, mingling with fanatical racist far-right hate groups, and was known to carry a copy of Mein Kampf with him at all times. The lack of any worth, love, or real inclusion made Franklin a perfect target for hate groups, especially after all his prior years of exposure to heavy evangelicalism. He attempted joining the Marines, but was not allowed because of the eye injury. He did get into the National Guard, but was discharged after just four months because he couldn't handle showing up to drills. But the Nazi sympathizer group will definitely take that guy. I know, what an asshole. Got a bum eye? That's okay, we'll take you. So, as one does, when they can't cut it for real... He signed up with far-right groups, took on whatever half-assed training he could, and it was enough for him to achieve deadly accuracy as a sniper. 
And within the hateful paramilitary groups, he found a sense of purpose. I was Some joking. identity. I didn't even, I didn't read that. I was even, joking. No, yeah, it's all real. Oh my gosh. Your prediction was spot on. He found a twisted form of self-worth. In 1979, at age 29, Franklin managed to marry again while living in Alabama. His bride, a 16-year-old girl, gave birth to their daughter on August 25th that year. By I, the fu- hang on yeah, a I know, I know. It's I, I, I think every time you read a case or a story, whatever you want to call it, about like a piece of shit like this, like every time. I'm always like, God, I really hate that guy. It can't get any worse. And I think I say that every single time. And it gets worse. And it gets worse. Like it, this is, oh my gosh. We're at level five bad right now. It's, we're, we're escalating here, okay? So she gave birth to his daughter on August 25th that year. And by the fall of 1980, when Franklin was on the FBI most wanted list, they were already separated. Do you think so? Like, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> So as evidenced by his marriage to these younger women in which he was abusive, there's a lot of clear inadequacy within this man, right? And, and as you know, John Douglas kind of points out, inadequacy is, one of the, is, a, is a very key motivating factor of serial killers. And inadequacy, according to his research that will span more than a decade, Inadequacy is one of the foremost shared characteristics of assassin-style killers, which is what we're dealing with here. And when you say inadequacy, we're not just talking about penile inadequacy. No. It's like it's just like any any yeah. kind of thing. No. Right? Like, yep. Yeah. So. I, so. But I think, and I wrote down the words worth, love, or inclusion. Right. So we've we've all been an awkward teenager, and many of us. I mean women for sure, teenager, you know, teenage girls for sure always struggle with worth. You know, there's, and you know, you throw in some trauma in there, you sprinkle that on top and it's like a, you know, it's a perfect storm. The majority of us aren't out there murdering people. No. Right. So where, so figured it out. Right. So where is that? Where is that? Like, where's that line? Right. I mean, if if you're, if you, if you're overcompensating for something, right. I mean, so it, it clearly it's some sort of psychological yep. thing. I would, I'd like to go to that library with John Douglas and have a conversation. Well, yeah, and, and, and really, according to, to Douglas, every serial, serial killer or violent predator is generally trying to compensate for inadequacies and to vent their anger and resentment at the world. Eventually, for these individuals, that inadequacy becomes overwhelming and it must be acted upon. Sure. I mean, so it's definitely, you know, something is not firing properly, right? right? Because we've all struggled with an inadequacy somewhere, unless you're a narcissistic, narcissistic asshole, but like we've all struggled with that somewhere. Right. I mean, Um, so like, where is that? Where's that line? I don't know. It's it's interesting. Given his escape from the police, Douglas believed it most likely that Joseph Paul Franklin would go back to places he was most familiar with. According to the interviews that he conducted with sisters, friends, and ex-wives, Franklin always seemed to have money. Investigators concluded robbery was his most likely method of financial comeuppance. Based on that, police began linking his known whereabouts to unsolved bank robberies, and several bank tellers identified him. Franklin was on the run, which made his primary source of revenue, robbery, even more dangerous. 
John Douglas didn't think Franklin would risk armed robbery at this time, and Douglas was right. Franklin got spotted giving blood in Montgomery, Alabama on October 9th and 13th. So I'm the, sorry, wait, what? Yeah, oh yeah, he got spotted. They, Douglas is like, hey, he needs money. He can't rob shit. He's probably going to go to these blood banks. And so they went around to blood banks and started circulating his picture. And sure enough, they were like, yeah, that guy was in here. So they, they got that information, but they were late on that. And so well, clearly I mean, that makes him an upstanding citizen. I oh guess. yeah. That's, that's wonderful. That, that erases everything, you know, it's balancing the old scales there. Yeah. So the stress of being broke and on the run was very likely to make Franklin sloppy. So Franklin's on the loose somewhere in the South speculation from John Douglas was that he would try something big. If he's about to get caught, he's going to feel backed into a wall. He's going to try one more big thing before he gets caught. Jimmy Carter was campaigning throughout the South along with several other progressive senatorial candidates. Any of them would make a perfect target for Franklin. The Secret Service swarmed out across campaign cities like bees sent from a hive. Every precaution possible was taken. Franklin's photo was circulated throughout dozens of blood clinics. This level of attention to detail and preparation is what led to Franklin's arrest just outside of a clinic in Lakeland after he was identified and even delayed for a few minutes by smart and prepared and brave clinic staff. During his interview, after being arrested, Franklin denied any involvement in the killings and lambasted police for profiling him over his racist views. A judge ultimately decided there was enough evidence to charge Franklin and he was extradited to Utah. So he has to take this long plane ride, private plane ride from Florida to Utah. And he was transferred by U.S. Marshals, one Agent Dwyer. Dwyer's an old friend with Douglas and asks Douglas for some advice on how to handle this. So Douglas provided Dwyer with an in-depth analysis of Franklin, as well as interrogative advice, tactics, and strategies to deploy. Ultimately, all of this led to a lot of progress with Douglas while they were in the air, and it became proof of concept for the BSU's work and was a key early victory that forever helped its evolution and legitimacy. So, I mean, basically, they were just they were just trying to, like, rattle him, right? I mean, so yes, there was a lot like, of rattling, like, so seeing, seeing if they could get him to yeah. admit some shit, but a lot of rattling him. Would work and- they, yeah, they made sure to fly his plane by the penitentiary, remind him that Utah has the death penalty, kind of point out. Like there was all these little little things that, that he did that were truly helpful. Now, although the FBI wanted to deliver Franklin to Salt Lake City with little fanfare, city officials there had other ideas and tipped off local media. A throng of reporters awaited their arrival. So the plane was ordered to be pulled into a private National Guard hangar. No expense in security was spared. Franklin wore a bulletproof vest, and the hangar was filled by men armed with M16s. He was escorted by motorcade to the jail. Cameras flashed as Franklin exited toward the building, and he shouted, quote, The communist federal government is trying to frame me. Yep. It's absolutely what's happening. Franklin was first charged and tried for the federal crimes, the violation of the rights of Theodore Fields and David Lamar Martin for the racially motivated killings. The state prosecution would follow that. His arraignment made national news, and that's when Lee Lankford, 
of the Richmond Heights Police Department in Missouri became convinced Franklin was their guy for the 1977 Brith Shalom Kineseth Israel Synagogue shooting. The MO matched the evidence and Franklin looked like the composite sketch. Lee Lankford made a promise to the family of Jerry Gordon and he meant to keep it. Not only was Franklin facing charges in Utah, he was charged with first-degree murder in Oklahoma and was considered the prime suspect for similar racially motivated killings in Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. On November 25th, while awaiting trial, Franklin gave a phone interview to the Cincinnati Inquirer. He described his, and in that interview, he described his escape from the jail there and he finished it with, quote... Dude, you opened up a window. It's not an escape. Like, I mean, <laughs> come on. Well, according to him, quote, the Lord didn't think my time had come to get caught. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. The Lord yeah. unlocked that window for him, Don Palumbo. You betcha. Yep, yep. I've opened a window before, too. It's wild. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean... Was it, it wasn't divine providence I, that opened that window for you? You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in synchronicity and, you know, all that stuff and, you know, signs and all that... I feel like if a window's open, I guess, whatever, whatever you want to believe, little buddy, it's fine. Franklin said he thought he was being held in Utah on account of the letter he wrote to Jimmy Carter, but asserted he had no real interest in Carter as a target. Franklin claimed innocence, suggesting he'd only kill in self-defense. In another radio show interview, he again claimed innocence, although added, quote, race mixing is a sin against God and nature. Whoever killed the joggers committed justifiable homicide. Who is giving this guy airtime? Seriously. Like that's how anybody would. It's crazy. Do they still let killers in jail do radio interviews? I don't know. Like, I guess they, they interview. It was just, that was crazy to me. He was on a public radio, got to say this shit while in jail waiting trial. So witnesses from the jails in both Florida and Utah, um, some some jailhouse informants come forward and claim that Franklin confessed the, the Salt Lake City murders to them as well as several others. So while talking himself up to other inmates in jail, Franklin allegedly admitted for the very first time to shooting civil rights activist Vernon Jordan. He also put a stake on his claim to another very notable shooting that happened in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Although the FBI and Joint Task Force evaluated Joseph Paul Franklin for every sniper-style killing in the United States, there was one that investigators never would have linked Franklin to because this particular victim was a white man. Not just any white man. Joseph Paul Franklin's target was famed publisher Larry Flint of Hustler Magazine. Man. The attack that left Larry Flint paralyzed from the waist down and Flint's attorney, Gene Reeves, seriously injured. Franklin said he did it because he was disgusted by the porn publication's pictorials of mixed-race couples. He had no problem with the porn. Right. Mind right. Point he was sure to, he was clear to point that out. You know, I got nothing against of porn. All things, right? Hustler of all things, yeah, yeah. The guy that shot Larry Flint. So You've really put me in a pickle here, but yeah. like it's... It, I mean, not that not that Larry Flint deserved to be shot. Like nobody, nobody does. But I mean, it's a weird, weird situation. It's a wow moment. It is. Franklin's federal trial began on February twenty third, nineteen eighty one, and it was full of outbursts. At one point, he had to be removed from the courtroom and put in a room with a one way radio just so he could listen. He hurled slurs and accusations 
calling them all liars and lapdogs for the FBI and a communist government. I want to pull the audience here for a second. Raise your hand if you're surprised. No, no, Nobody? No, zero surprise. Right. No hands. No hands. Franklin was found guilty on March 3rd, 1981. This was the first in a marathon of trials across the United States for Joseph Franklin. At sentencing, Franklin lunged over the table at prosecutors and a dozen agents swarmed him, wrestled him to the ground in front of the judge's bench, and it took several minutes to subdue and ultimately shackle him. He was then given two life sentences. Franklin's murder spree was officially at its end, but his story doesn't quite end there. Of course it doesn't. Law enforcement officials all over the country wanted to charge him, question him, prosecute him, fry him, you name it. On September 18th, he was also found guilty at the Utah State Trial. He now had four life sentences. The following year, on January 31st, 1982, Franklin was transferred to a maximum security penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, a rough, vicious place filled with violent, unmanageable prisoners. Franklin arrived there with a reputation that didn't win him many friends. Three days after his arrival, Franklin got prison shanked in the neck and abdomen 15 times by a knife crafted from a can. Okay, A plus for creativity. And <laughs> and I would have walked the other way and been like, I didn't see shit. Like that's, that is, nope. Well. Sorry, and I shouldn't say that. I mean, but. Well, like, eh, I mean, I don't know. This guy course. might be, this guy might, of course, this fucker survives. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, there were guards nearby, but they didn't air quotes, see the attack. What did I tell you? That's exactly what I said. They didn't see shit. Yep. He was rushed to the hospital and survived after surgery. The state of Indiana. You know, the whole Hippocratic oath and then, you know, know, the the correctional officers and like with the, you know, maintain care, custody and control. Like I I get it. I mean. But if you didn't see it, you didn't see it. You didn't see it. It's tough. Sometimes you miss things. Like a prison shanking of a piece of shit. I mean. From a can. I mean, hey, who gave the guy a can? But second. Innovative. It's. So the state of Indiana, as well as the federal government, wanted to prosecute Franklin for the attempt on Vernon Jordan's life. It was thought of by many to be kind of political grandstanding and you know, the federal government just wanted to sort of send a message that these types of civil rights violations were being taken seriously by the federal government. Mind you, Franklin is already convicted of, a, of four life sentences right now, and Jordan himself viewed the trial as a waste of taxpayer money and time. Still, the trial went on. On August 17th, after eight hours of deliberation, the jury in the trial for the attempted murder of Vernon Jordan returned a verdict of not guilty. What? Are you serious? Yes. Like you would have made that up. I don't know why I just said, are you serious? But like, (laughs) oh my gosh. A decision that evidently came down to the wording on the indictment for federal civil rights violation. So So it was a victory for, for Franklin. Sure. So now, in place of the fervor to prosecute Franklin for murders in all the other states, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania... There was reluctance, and it was a really tough decision. But in many of these cases, the evidence was stale and could have holes poked in it. 
there was no there were no murder weapons or real hard evidence to get him. Nobody actually saw him do the shootings. People very much wanted Franklin to be given the death penalty. So when Oklahoma backed out, there was a lot of real disappointment. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why that's funny, but it's like, damn it, Oklahoma, we were counting on you. They like, were. Like, like, <laughs> they really? were. I, so I, uh, I'm not trying, because it's, it's very serious, but it's like, like, yeah, leave it on the South. Can we get that? Like, we'll, Come on, we'll, Oklahoma. Yeah. In 1983, Franklin, still rotting in the same penitentiary where he was prison shanked, wrote a letter confessing to the attempted murder of Larry Flint. Aside from the recognition for the attempted murder, Franklin's likely motivation was to be tried in a state court and relocated to a safer prison. Now, people may not know this, but Larry Flint spent shitloads of his own money trying to identify and find his attempted killer because he openly believed the government was responsible for the attempt on his life for his inquiries into the JFK killings. But it was actually Franklin. So the Flint confession was actually the first of many surprise murder revelations. Franklin was finally starting to confess crimes he was suspected of, but also several others he was never previously connected to. Through his attorney, Joseph Paul Franklin contacted investigators in Wisconsin, claiming that August 1977 murder of a black man and a white woman at a shopping mall in Madison. While telling the story of the shopping mall murder, he went off on a digressional tangent about a female hitchhiker he shot the following spring near Toma, Wisconsin. Once in his car, Franklin asked where she got her suntan. The young woman recently returned from a vacation from Jamaica and, according to Franklin, claimed she liked Jamaican men. Oh my gosh. It sealed her fate. Just outside of Toma, Joseph Paul Franklin asked if she wanted to smoke some pot, and the two pulled into a, rem- a remote area near a state park. Once there, Franklin pulled out a 44 Magnum and ordered her out of the car as if he was going to rape her. As she was walking away, Franklin, from the car, shot her twice from behind, dumped her belongings, and left the body. And again, mind you, this isn't even the murder he was calling to tell them about. It just casually frickin' came up like it was Sunday brunch yesterday. Investigators confirmed the dates and linked the unsolved murder to 22-year-old student Rebecca Bergstrom in Mill Bluff State Park. She was shot in the head and back. She was a friendly, loving girl with very big aspirations. According to Franklin, according to Franklin, he made a habit of picking up female hitchhikers because, quote, it was unsafe for them to be alone. I... Uh, Yeah, it's a hard one to stomach. Mind you, again, this wasn't the murder he contacted police about. It just came up in conversation. So he contacted authorities to confess to the shopping mall murders of Alphonse Manning Jr. and Tony Schwen. But then, in his way, just continued to ramble because somebody was listening to him. Mm -hmm. Hey, guys. He he rambled into the the, the murder of... uh, of that young girl. If we can all just like make a collective promise to one another to just love your children. Okay. Yeah. Like just, just love them, give them a little bit of affection 
and uh, you know, and then shit like this maybe doesn't happen. I don't know. Maybe can we just start there. So, gosh, Franklin originally ventured to Madison, Wisconsin, with a mission of killing Jewish County Court Judge Archie Simonson. Franklin was upset over his handling of a court case in which three young black men were proclaimed innocent for raping a white woman, an obvious potential frame job that the judge saw right through. Franklin, not happy about that, came to Madison fresh off the bombing of a synagogue in Chattanooga, Tennessee on July 29th. So oh, that's right. He was. Still, he did a bombing. He's still just rambling. Oh yeah. This, this, is, this, this is, is all the, coming out. This in, is all coming in this out. Yeah, I was gonna go. I was gonna go kill this judge, and and so things happened. So on July 29th, he had actually bombed a synagogue in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There were no deaths in that bombing, and then following that, he bombed the home of Jewish lobbyist uh, Morris Amate in Maryland. So he's fresh off these bombings. He's still got dynamite. And he figured if I can't kill the judge by going into his office and shooting him or by knocking on his front door and killing him with a pistol, he figured he would wire the judge's car with dynamite. And he explained all of this to investigators as if it was a footnote in the larger story. You see, Franklin didn't just want to kill black people and interracial couples. He believed this was his divine mission to begin God's holy race war. Oh my God. He believed once the word of his actions spread, the race war would begin and he would be freed from prison and heralded as a hero in God's holy war in the Aryan army. I, I will... Um... I've said it numerous times, like we don't get to decide how someone faces their trauma. We don't, you know, mental health. Like how many times in the last 50 something episodes have I said the words mental health? This guy, I don't even care. Like I just, whatever, man, like this guy's fucking crazy. Simple as that. Just, I I, I got nothing. Like, and I don't even like to say that, but like, this is so, this is ridiculous. Oh, it's Franklin got distracted from his holy mission at the East while at the East town mall when a car backed out in front of him from a parking space, then drove too slowly. Franklin started road raging, and the other driver, a black man, got out of his vehicle. That's when Franklin noticed the black man was with a white woman. As Alphonse Manning Jr. approached, Franklin swung open his door and shot him twice. He then calmly walked over to Manning's car and shot Tony Schwen twice through the driver's side window, He described in great detail a black hat that he lost in the process. It matched one found at the crime scene. So he has more more sadness over his lost black hat than he does over the numerous humans. Well, if that wasn't any sign, I'll have you know that afterwards he went to McDonald's for a Happy Meal. Then he drove around for a while until police were gone, returned to the Ramada Inn, slept, and left the next day. This was actually Franklin's first murder. It wasn't planned, but the decisive choice to kill and subsequent depersonalization of his victims gave him the confidence to kill more. Detectives came really close to catching Franklin back then. 
Agents narrowed down the vehicle license plates to Alabama, searching thousands of records in mobile, eventually narrowing it down to 55 names. But the investigators were called back to Wisconsin after 15 interviews before they got to him. Joseph Paul Franklin went on to murder at least 19 more people after that incident. So he was At one of East he was, Town Mall. He was one of fifty-five names, basically. Yeah, and they got through fifteen, and Wisconsin was like, "We don't feel like your investigation's going anywhere. It's costing us too much money to have you down there. You guys need to come back home." Tennessee wanted to prosecute Franklin for the bombings and wasted no time pressing the killer into court on July twelfth, nineteen eighty-five. It was a two-day trial, and jurors declared him guilty after forty-five minutes of deliberation. Franklin insisted on giving his own closing statement, then went on to force everyone present to hear a disgusting, racist, paranoid piece of shit rant that I will not repeat. It was a pathetic effort to communicate his warped message of a holy race war and his being God's instrument of white justice. Over the years, he kept talking and more investigators aimed to close cases. Franklin was consistently able to provide details not known outside the confines of the investigation. Franklin could describe in incredible detail the moments of his murders, the preparation that went into it, the meticulous escape plans, all of it, but he easily forgot other daily details and happenings. Franklin planned his getaway route, disposed of the weapons, switched cards and plates, and wore disguises. FBI headquarters took note that John Douglas's fugitive assessment was accurate and his advice on how to interact with Franklin was instrumental. This was a major validation for the work of the BSU. It eventually led to a joint Secret Service FBI study on the assassin personality in which they concluded the assassin personality was delusional and paranoid, not insane, and personally angry at specific people, usually with different belief systems. Douglas eventually spent time interviewing Franklin as part of that study. And something that was really unique about Franklin as a serial killer was the use of both guns and explosives. By Franklin's own admission, the method of killing wasn't as important to him as how effective it was. Unlike nearly every other serial killer ever, Franklin didn't stick with one method that worked for him. And the Amate house bombing and the Beth Shalom bombing were his first attempts to kill. So he, I guess, had some compassion and wanted to make sure it was effective. Like, that's why he went through, I mean, different... Yeah, it's, it's an unusual serial killer characteristic, yeah. So heading into the 90s, Franklin was still the prime suspect in several other crimes, and one investigator had dedicated his life to bringing Franklin to justice. Back in 1982... Captain Lee Lankford, remember him? St. Louis, Missouri. He started sending letters to Joseph Paul Franklin asking the killer about the Brith Shalom Synagogue shooting after Lankford had been tracking, um, after he saw him on the television. So back in 82, Lankford had been tracking Franklin's cases since he watched the televised arraignment from Salt Lake City. So at this point, like behind the scenes, he's still he's still working it, but hadn't been able to nothing. Yeah, to, to bring it to so, yeah. prosecutors or whatever. Yeah, because we're in the early '90s now. Sure. 
Lankford, life of dedication, sending letters. Lankford even went so far as to send Joseph Paul Franklin money for commissary. And in October of 1994, more than 12 years of effort paid off when Franklin called the FBI and confessed the 1977 synagogue shooting. Lee Lankford had retired as police chief just two years prior. Do you suppose he put in for reimbursement? Yeah, I, I don't know. In 1995, while awaiting that trial, Franklin offered more confessions. The unsolved 1978 murder of Bryant Tatum in a Pizza Hut parking lot in Chattanooga, the only unsolved murder in the city that year. Franklin also declared during that confession that his new goal in life was to have the most pending death penalty cases of any killer ever. Well, how, how can he? I mean, Oklahoma bailed. So, I mean, how, how many were actually, how, how many were actually death penalty? I, I, I don't have, oh, I don't okay. have the Midwest okay. math on it. Sorry. Okay. That's fair. That same year, Joseph Paul Franklin told the St. Louis post dispatch reporter that he did shoot Vernon Jordan. The serial killer also owned up to the Mississippi slaying of 25-year-old Johnny Noyes in 1979. What made this confession interesting is that Henry Lee Lucas, another low-life shitbag serial killer, had actually claimed responsibility for that murder along with hundreds of others. But investigators were so investigators closed that case on Henry Lee Lucas but Franklin ultimately knew details that confirmed to investigators he was the true killer. The Missouri State trial for the murder of Gerald Gordon started on January 27th of 1997, nearly two decades after the crime. The trial concluded on January 30th when Franklin was found guilty. At sentencing, he offered... It lasted three days. Three days. Three days. There's like 45 minutes of deliberation. At sentencing, he offered a closing statement... In which, get this, he threatened to kill someone if they didn't give him the death penalty. He told the courtroom it would be a farce if he was not sentenced to death. Jurors deliberated for one hour before determining Franklin's crimes justified capital punishment. I, you know what? I wouldn't have just to piss him off. Like just to, because I mean, nobody's going to die. Like he's not going to kill anybody else because there are going to be other correctional officers who are not watching. I mean, if it, it, it's going to, it's going to go against him. Like I would have just been like, no, no, I don't think so. Sorry. <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah. Throughout the nineties, after his interview with the BSU, Franklin, ref, Franklin refused interview requests from men. And he eventually developed a rapport with several female investigators and one journalist. These relationships led to several more confessions, the most important of which exonerated an innocent man, not a piece of shit serial killer this time, a real person. Like, he literally called the FBI and told them he was only willing to come clean on more crimes to an attractive white female investigators. So they sent two. <laughs> Assistant DA Carol Ellis and Police Lieutenant Pam Pendergrass, total badasses, Franklin confessed to several killings in Georgia. Harold McIver on July 12, 1979, and a 15-year-old prostitute on December 5th of that same year. After learning the girl also slept with black men, Franklin shot her in the head and back. 
Franklin killed MacIver, a Taco Bell manager, because white women worked for him, and Franklin was certain MacIver took advantage of them. Then, two more killings outside of Atlanta, a black man and his pregnant white wife. She survived, but was left paralyzed from the attack. That case had been open for over 20 years. Franklin was indicted, but at this point, authorities saw little use in prosecuting him any further. Now, as I mentioned... One of Franklin's confessions led to the exoneration of an innocent man, the rainbow killings of West Virginia, a double homicide that Franklin first mentioned and claimed stake for back in 1984 was ignored, then again in 97 and in 1998. In spite of that, it took until the year 2000 for the case to be truly resolved. Now, I can't go through the convoluted mess that was the investigation of the Rainbow Killings. That story could be its own podcast, and it probably is somewhere. But long story short, two young women were murdered near a Rainbow family gathering in West Virginia. These events attract an excess of 10,000 people who are often considered counterculture types, hippies and gypsies. The Rainbow family was definitely not welcomed by everyone in West Virginia. So, John Douglas called this investigation one of the most convoluted and muddled crime investigations he'd ever seen, full of logic leaps, assumed connections, and damn near conspiracies. He said it was the perfect example of Occam's razor, that the most simplest answer is the most likely to be true. In this investigation, police attempted to convict six men together for the murders of 19-year-old Nancy Santomiro and 26-year-old Vicky Durian. When that didn't work, they managed to convince five of the guys to point the finger at one man, Jake Beard. Beard was convicted in 1993, nine years after Douglas confessed to this murder. He was convicted in 1993 and given two life sentences. Cincinnati reporter Deborah Dixon's work on this was instrumental in pushing the injustice into the light. Her investigative work led to a 60 Minutes report, and it turned out John Douglas had actually consulted on this case, provided the investigator with Franklin's fugitive report, encouraged that that Franklin was probably your guy, but the man never read it. The investigator was convinced of his theory and, even after all this new information came to light, refused to back down. The prosecution and investigators made every effort to prevent a new trial for Jake Beard. The judge disagreed and told them they could choose to re-prosecute at a new trial or accept him as innocent and take Franklin's confession. The prosecutor and sheriff chose to take Jake Beard back to trial. Thankfully, the jury delivered a verdict of innocence, and Beard was later awarded $2 million in a settlement after serving more than six years in prison. The sheriff, investigator, and prosecutor took their belief of Beard's guilt all the way to their graves. Were they investigated? I mean, good <laughs> Fair grief. Fair question. How crazy. Like, it, it, so, after more than a decade of appeals and stalling. Hang on, hang on. Oh, yeah, like, sure. This this is this is this is where we we get into to issues is because we we then protect people like that yeah we protect that sheriff we pr- protect that investigator and we protect that prosecutor no even, even though even though they have absolutely no right 
to do this drives me crazy. This, this drives me crazy. And I'm, I am, I was raised by a cop. I was in law I was in, I was a correctional sure. officer. I mean, I, like, come on. I, I, I mean, there, there's, there's a line, but, but even if you, you can still su- support law enforcement, but not want to protect the shitty ones. Yeah. I think there's, there's, it just, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts too. And, and Douglas kind of referred to this case as, you know, a shockingly obvious and illustrative example of the flaws in our justice system. But he also went back to just really point out that if you're investigating something in your investigation, he's like this, this is, he said, this investigation relied on six co-conspirators that supposedly kept a secret. He's like, I've just never seen that. He's like, there's never that many co He's like, it doesn't happen. And he said it also, again, the logic leaps. And so it was, he said it was a mess. And I think he was even kind of nice. You know, he was very tact with how he right, put it, right. um, but it, it was a total mess. But after more than a decade of appeals installing, uh, Joseph Paul Franklin was finally scheduled for execution by lethal injection on November 20th, 2013. Interestingly, Larry Flint spoke against his execution for two reasons. Yeah, um, put that in perspective. That was nine years ago. This should have right. been going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, He's been killing nine, since 77, I think it yeah, was his first kill. And this kill. was only nine years ago. So Larry, Larry Flint spoke against his execution for two reasons. Quote, a government that forbids killing among its citizens should not be in the business of killing people itself. And two, that rotting in prison was, quote, far harsher than the quick release of a lethal injection. And Franklin desperately tried to claim he was a changed man, blah, blah, blah. Um, the governor denied his clemency. Wait, wait, wait. He's a changed man, even though he... I'm not racist anymore. Even though he said it was, you know, if you if you don't kill me, if you don't give me the death penalty, then it's, so it's here, a bunch of baloney, right? Yeah, here's, so here's the kicker about that. I just want to make sure that that was clear. There's, there's a kicker about that, and we'll get there. Franklin never actually... Well, we'll just go there right now. Franklin never actually wanted to die. He just didn't want to be murdered by black prisoners or corrupt prison guards in that stiff-ass prison he was in in Marion. His whole goal with all this shit was to get out of... To not be to, fucking to, murdered by them. To be in his own little to, cell on death be, row. Quote, yeah, yeah. So Lee, wow. Lee Lankford said, quote, how many lives did he take on his rampage across the United States just to be put to sleep? That's the easiest way out of here. Madison, Wisconsin prosecutor Hal Harlow probably put it best when he said, quote, he was ordinary and not very bright. He was not nearly as special as the many people he killed. The primary source for this episode is the book Killer's Shadow, the FBI's hunt for a white supremacist serial killer by John E. Douglas and Mark Olshaker. The latter reflections of the book go on to share many insights on the nature of hate, its evolution in the social media era, as well as how people like Joseph Paul Franklin become activated and worse, become heroes to people like Dylan Roof. Franklin was indeed a spiritual father to many lone wolf white supremacist killers. From John Douglas, quote, Thoughts and words matter. They have power for both good and evil. They inspire some to violence, and those, in turn, inspire others. The shadow cast by Joseph Paul Franklin is long and dark, so the sunlight 
to eradicate it must be even brighter and stronger. Overall, investigators believe Franklin is responsible for at least 19 murders and five non-fatal shootings in 11 states, two bombings, and 16 bank robberies. One final point of note I'd like to highlight is a reflection on this story in Franklin's desire to go to Rhodesia and why that was a thing. It struck me. So there was a lot of tough guy talk within the white supremacist community, and it was always about going to Rhodesia. So Rhodesia at this time had a white-dominated government, and that government was really repressive and forceful upon its people. So there was a lot of Rhodesian guerrilla militants armed to overthrow that minority white government who was the descendants of European settlers. So they were fighting to maintain control of the state of Rhodesia from 1965 until 1979. So a lot of white supremacists would sign up to go be paramilitary mercenaries to go fight for this oppressive white government over the state of Rhodesia. So eventually international sanctions and years of guerrilla war forced a settlement there to a vote, which resulted in majority rule. And that was the creation of the country we now know as Zimbabwe. So, so he was not actually put to death though. He's dead. Yeah, no, no, no. He was put he's, to death. Yep, he was he's dead. Oh, yep. cause I was really, I mean, there's a big part of me that, that's, that was really hoping that he was shitting razor blades to this very day. Like, nope. I mean, just, he like, died and, he said something stupid and shitty that of course he did. at his closing yeah. statements, I ain't, I ain't repeating it. Fuck him. But uh, I'm still calling him room 138 guy. Yeah. I'm not saying his name. Beyond that, that the sucks. timeline sources for this, the Atlantic.com, WCSX.com, and the people of history.com. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by myself, Joan Alanto, and Don Palumbo. This episode brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. Check it out on Facebook. And Instagram. And Instagram. We thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you.